0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org/future to learn more and support their
1: cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
0: From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Last week, Donald Trump became the first president in American history to be indicted on criminal charges. Trump appeared in court for his arraignment earlier this week, and now the charges have been unsealed. To discuss the strength of the Manhattan DA's case against Trump and what comes next, I'm joined by my Cafe Insider co-host, Joyce Vance, who served as the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. Also joining us is Ben Wittes, who is the editor-in-chief of Lawfare and a senior
2: fellow at the Brookings Institution.
0: Ben, Joyce, welcome to another special episode of Stay Tuned. How are you?
2: Good morning. I'm good. It was a late night and an early morning, but, uh, you know, fired up and ready to go.
0: (laughs) So I should timestamp this for folks. We're recording this in the 9 a.m. hour Eastern time on Wednesday, April 5th. Obviously, we are gathered here today because (laughs) the indictment against Donald Trump was unsealed. Uh, I want to get folks' reactions to it. There have been reactions pouring in. Since it was unsealed yesterday, along with a statement of facts that's a little bit more robust, or I guess a lot more robust than the very bare bones indictment itself, people who reported that there would be 34 counts were correct. People who reported that there would likely be a conspiracy count were incorrect. Uh, people who thought there were going to be charges outside of falsification of books and records were incorrect. Alvin Bragg gave a, you know, I don't think it was, I wouldn't call it lengthy, but I wouldn't call it Truncated but a relatively modest press conference answered some questions. Ben, we haven't had you on in a while. When I texted you... And I've been hurt by that. (laughs) (laughs) When I texted you last night and asked you your reaction, and then we'll get into the details, you said, I don't hate it. And in response, you asked me what I thought, and I said, "I, I didn't love it. What did you mean when you said you didn't hate it? And what were your expectations?
2: So I don't know what my expectations were. I... Feared that it would be very weak, uh, partly because of the, you know, barrage of people confidently announcing that it would be very weak, despite you know assiduously trying to avoid pre-indictment commentary on indictments. You end up getting influenced by that stuff anyway, but partly also because of the weird procedural history of the case. I feared, uh, you know, that it had been kind of mothballed for a bunch of years, and then kind of suddenly comes to life. So i I did fear that it would be, you know, quite unimpressive. On the other hand, uh, knowing that Alvin Bragg's uh, and Cyrus Vance had successfully prosecuted the Trump Organization and Alan Weisselberg, I also thought there was an outside chance that it would be much more impressive than expectations and would fold in a bunch of the allegations involving the Trump organization which you know he has already proved in a different context and of course it turns out it's neither of those it's more or less exactly the indictment we expected uh, or that had been anticipated by the more Responsible journalists, Uh, and that, but yet it has some, I think, novel factual features that are that make it a bit more impressive than I expected in that regard. So, for example, Bragg seems to have some sort of non-trivial evidence that this was done specifically for electoral purposes, specifically material Uh, he cites in the Statement of Facts that there was an explicit discussion that once you get past the election, you actually don't have to pay uh, because it doesn't matter if it comes out at that point. So I, I think there are some features that I... Nodded at and thought, huh, that's better than I expected. On the other hand, it is, it's not a particular, you know, barn burner of an indictment. And the people who uh, have criticized him for kind of jumping the line in the importance of these cases, this will not shut them up. Um, And then, you know, on the third hand, I actually think Bragg did a fairly impressive job in his press conference yesterday of making the case that this was not unrelated to the democracy concerns that are kind of at the forefront of a lot of our minds, and that this was, among other things, an election interference effort. And so I I guess I ended up thinking, do I wish some other case had come first? Yes. Do I think this is the most important case that's going to likely to be brought or should be brought against Donald Trump? Certainly not. But uh, I didn't hate it in the sense that I read the the documents and said, gee, you know, this is a, a plausible uh, set of criminal allegations involving a dirty scheme to do something uh, very inappropriate in the context of an election uh, for the presidency of the United States. And so I, I guess that's what I meant by didn't hate it. I'd be curious whether you agree with that. And if so, what you meant by didn't love it.
0: I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but something you said just now causes me to want to ask Joyce, Ben said a second ago, the indictment presents a plausible set of charges. Is that, is that the right standard when you're bringing the first ever case against the former president of the United States?
3: So I think obviously you need more, but I think that this indictment does offer more than just a plausible set of charges. And Ben, you know, it's it's very interesting. What I had expected here, and you talked about this a little bit, was the indictment that we got. I also expected that it would be wrapped in this notion that it's the origin story of, of Trump's efforts to manipulate elections. I think that that elevates this case a little bit. And although it doesn't hit you over the head when you read the bare bones indictment, I think the more that we socialize what's in the statement of facts and what the case is about, I think it takes on a little bit more of a, a patina of importance because of that context. In terms of are the charges plausible, or or are they charges that have proof beyond a reasonable doubt to back them up? Always hard to tell at this point. If Bragg can prove everything that he offers in the statement of facts, then he would obviously have proof beyond a reasonable doubt of the charges. And what that leads us to is sort of the legal nitty gritty conversation about whether the charges themselves hold water, which I think is the point of your question, Preet. As we've talked about, I I think maybe beaten to death, this charge, this business records charge that Bragg is now exclusively focused on is a misdemeanor. And it becomes a felony if the False business records are created to aid the commission of or conceal an additional crime. We get this from, I think, mostly from Bragg's press conference, to be honest, was where I understood that he was given us three options, two election-related options, one state, one federal, and then a tax charge option for that additional crime. And those theories are plausible. It will depend on how they are spooled out. There will be some early legal challenges, right? There will be people who will say that Bragg lacks the authority to invoke the federal crime. The judge will have to make a decision about that. There will be people who will claim that the state crime does not apply to a federal election. The judge will have to sort that out. I think Bragg's gambit here is that some law has to apply to a a president who's running for election or a, a candidate who's running for election in the state of New York. So you can't say that neither the federal nor the state law applies. And And his gambit is that one of those will survive for a future d- jury to decide on. That might make the uh, tax charge, the Goldilocks charge here, the one that's the most straight line forward. But plausible, yes. Better than plausible, yes. I'm sort of impressed by the prosecutorial tradecraft that goes into this.
0: So, I'm trying to parse my reaction and why I had the the mildly underwhelming reaction that I had. And, and part of it is not so rigorous. Part of it is, you know, when I've read indictments in the past, and technically this is not a speaking indictment, it's a bare-bones indictment, but there's a statement of facts that goes on for 12 or 13 pages that tells a story, or I guess multiple stories. And when I've read indictments in the past uh, of this nature that are significant and the whole world is watching and where, if you believe the premise, if you go with the king, you best not miss. I did not feel when I finished reading the indictment and the statement of facts, wow, this is a 100% winner. Uh, And bear in mind, obviously, that the indictment is the story that the prosecutors tell. That's the story that gets told and that you read before there are holes punctured in the story, before the judge may rule on dismissing some or, or, or many counts, before the defenses are brought to bear And so it's basically the opening statement of the government, and it just has not read as strong as others. And I remember, and people are going to get annoyed when I say this, even when you have a very strong indictment, an indictment that tells a very strong story, that doesn't at all mean that it's a winnable case or you're going to get a conviction. Um, And I remember reading some years ago, the indictment brought against Senator Robert Menendez. that was pretty salacious. And I remember thinking, wow, there seems to be a lot of proof here. And of course, no conviction was obtained against Bob Menendez in that case. So that's point one. Point two, on the the legal side, and Joyce has alluded to this a little bit, I was hoping for a little more clarity. And there are legal strategic reasons, um, I suppose, that my wish here was not granted. And that is absolute clarity as to which of the falsification of business records counts is elevated into a felony based on which specific crime, federal, state, tax, or campaign, so I can follow along. And sort of understand what the level of proof is. And sort of overall, I did not have the sense, and this is going to be important, not necessarily legally, but with respect to how people view the case, why is it that it took so long to bring it? And why is it that the Southern District of New York, who prosecuted Michael Cohen, not proceed? And the DA's office for Manhattan, many years later, did proceed. And maybe I missed it, but I didn't really get a fully satisfactory answer to that question, It's not part of the trial, but that's sort of my initial reaction. Anybody have a reaction to my reaction?
2: Yeah, so I would say I agree with all of that. And I don't, as I say, it's not the case that I would have liked to start with. Uh, Nor do I think it's a case that, you know, in the world of prosecutorial discretion is a no-brainer to bring. But I do think that the, you know, the conservative reaction to it, uh, which is that it's trivial or it's, you know, obviously not a crime, uh, as though, you know, New York real estate magnates frequently uh, engage in hush money schemes to protect their presidential campaigns you know, that this is the sort of thing that happens routinely, a kind of kind of NDA confidentiality agreement. I think they're in for a bit of a surprise as this thing gets litigated and it is not obvious that it should be thrown out. Uh, the briefing schedule that was set uh, that Joyce alluded to actually gives four months uh, before we're going to see a litigation over a motion to dismiss. And in the meantime, there's going to be discovery, there's going to be whatever motions come up in the meantime, and there's going to be, I think, other indictments. And so I while I don't think this is a no-brainer case to bring, I do think there is a fairly solid basis for it. I do think the document is, for the most part, self-justifying. And I also think it is not out of the range of the sort of thing that that office seeks accountability for in other contexts. And so I ended up being kind of more sympathetic to uh, Bragg's position, at least based on the one-sided, you know, presentation that that document represents than I expected to. I will say the one area that I was concerned about is this step-up issue where, you know, he was candid in his press conference that he didn't show his hand here because he doesn't have to. And he is going to have to in the context of the motion to dismiss, which will, you know, come by early august and so i do think at that point he's going to have to lay out you know what evidence he is prepared to show that trump was doing these things intending to commit another crime um
0: it's a little weird though isn't it ben and joyce that in a case like this where there has been a lot of years to bring the case so many years in fact that there's going to be litigation over the statute of limitations, which I think the DA will win, but it's going to be litigated. And the whole world is watching. And the public wants to understand the justification for these charges. And I think they are justified. That even at this late date, with an indictment and a statement of facts, that there was this thought that he shouldn't show his hand. He doesn't have to legally. But I think it's not just legal standards that apply to this case. Joyce, do you have a view on that?
3: Let me play devil's advocate here, because like everybody else, I would have liked to have seen more. Look, I would have liked to have seen page numbers in the indictment. I mean, yes,
0: if- that was my, that was, can we pause on that for a second? As the team knows. You
3: got
2: paragraph numbers. I am very, concerned. very, I'm sorry, very anal about enough. page numbers.
0: <laughs> and if something doesn't come out with page numbers, it has to be, it has to be redone. And yes, so that was my first shriek about the page numbers. I'm sorry, I interrupted.
3: Um, And now I've completely lost my train of thought because it's too early in the morning and I've laughed too hard about that. But let me play devil's advocate here and and say this. So Bragg explains that he's not required by New York law to line the charges up, you know, in, in the way that we would have all found more satisfying here. Not only is he not required to do that, it is not his office's practice to do that. And so I can imagine um, an alternate universe where Trump's lawyers, instead of holding their little, I don't know what it was, a pull off the roadside press conference or whatever they did, where they complained about boilerplate and nothing unusual here. Well, I can imagine if Bragg had very carefully detailed this information in his pleadings that they would have said, this is an outrage. You know, this is an effort to dirty up the former president. They're providing all of this information that they don't normally provide in these cases. And all of this stuff should be stricken from the indictment. You're damned if you do and damned if you don't here. Consistency is a prosecutorial virtue. And if you are an appellate lawyer sort of helping to manage these proceedings, and and we know that Bragg has some great folks on his team, then I think what you're saying is, when in doubt, do things the way you normally do. Engage and, and treat this case like you would treat other cases. If you don't line the charges up in the I think it's thirty other cases or maybe twenty-nine other cases under this statute that Bragg has, has brought in his year in office, then don't do it here. I think that may be what's going on and it may not be satisfying to us, but it may be helpful on appeal, assuming we get to that point.
2: Preed, I want to push you on a on a a question. Uh oh. How much of this, how much of your reservation about this has to do with the four corners of the indictment itself, and how much of it is contextual, this being the first indictment of Trump. As in, imagine that the document is exactly the same, the press conference is exactly the same, there's still no page numbers, and there's, (laughs) uh, you know, but... It comes after a -a Mar-a-Lago indictment, a Georgia indictment, and a January 6th indictment. How much of the problem here is that this is first, and how much of the problem is that it's substantively underwhelming from your point of view?
0: So it's not the fact that it's the first indictment. For me, it's a question of it being an indictment against a former president. And you would want, and we can do this exercise, I think we've done this exercise in recent weeks, Joyce, with what degree of certainty would you want the likelihood of conviction to sit at before you bring a case against a former president? And how serious should the crimes be? As um, Ben, I'll mention to you what I've mentioned in the past here. In my law school class at NYU, my seminar, I took a, a poll and said, you know, if you had proof beyond a reasonable doubt against Donald Trump to charge a misdemeanor or 34 misdemeanors, would you bring the case? And the unanimous answer was no. And I also voted no. And I think the panel we've had on the podcast also voted no. So that is a recognition that even if something is a crime, given the nature of it, given the unprecedented fact of it, and given who the target is, whether you like it or not, it's more trouble than it's worth. And then the question is, how much more serious must the crime be to be appropriate to bring? And then second, as I already mentioned, what do you want the likelihood of success to be? This is not any, anybody. And I think it's going to be bad for public faith and confidence in prosecutions, bad for people uh, who care about the reputation of the district attorney's office. If a conviction is not assured now, no conviction is a hundred percent assured. This just struck me as maybe being less assured than you might want in a charge against a former president of the United States. Maybe I'm making too much of the fact that it's Donald Trump and both of you should feel free to attack that premise. But I think if you're going to do this thing, it has to be very, very, very strong. And upon a first reading of the indictment and the Statement of Facts, it doesn't seem as strong as, I think, any speaking indictment we brought against a public figure in New York, and none of them was the President of the United States.
2: So I agree with that to a point, but I want to I wanna throw a couple darts at it. So the first is when you say you have to be assured. Uh, The you in that sentence is a little bit ambiguous. And, you know, Alvin Bragg knows the answers to some of the questions like what is the precise step-up theory that he is not showing his hand on. And so when, you know, it, it could very well be that when he has to litigate those questions, his confidence level on them is is a fair bit higher than is apparent from yesterday. Yep, that may be. The second thing is, because the misdemeanor is a lesser included charge of the felony, under under the relevant New York statute, he actually did charge thirty four misdemeanors as well as
0: the hypothetical was you only have the misdemeanor you don't have no the
2: no defense. I understand but I I'm saying this gives rise to a genuine possibility here which is what if he uh, actually fails on the step up but succeeds on the misdemeanor I think the misdemeanor counts are. You know, it's uh, it's hard for me to imagine these misdemeanors not sticking. So, so imagine- can, can
3: I throw a monkey wrench though in, into that analysis just a little we bit? We have
2: darts and monkey wrenches. Darts and monkey, Don't let the dart hit the
0: monkey.
3: <laughs> you know, I've been thinking about what that looks like. The misdemeanor charges. In fact, I wrote last night. You know, that this isn't all or nothing. It's not felonies or acquittal. It's felonies, misdemeanors, or acquittals. But the question of whether these charges go to the jury as felonies or misdemeanors is largely going to be decided by the the judge as a matter of law. And the way I understand the law in New York, which is admittedly a little bit imperfect, is that Trump won't be able to appeal whatever decisions the judge makes on this issue before a a final appeal of convictions. I think there's a very limited path for, for defendants to take these sort of appeals on substantive issues, but but largely it's foreclosed until later on. So the judge will look at each of these three step-up crimes, Ben, and the judge will make a decision about whether or not they pass scrutiny as a matter of law. And I think the jury, hearing the evidence, at least if Bragg can prove what he's laid out in the statement of facts, the evidence will be compelling on these charges. So it's largely a matter of of what they get to hear after the judge decides the legal issues. In other words, if let's just say that there's a, a failure here, it could be an indictment going to the jury solely on misdemeanor charges. I don't think that's the case, by the way. I think that at least two of the three will will pass scrutiny. But there is this interesting interplay between the misdemeanors and the felonies.
2: Yeah, so that's exactly the point of the hypothetical I was going to raise and push it pre Imagine that, you know, we litigate this thing, the motion to dismiss, the motions to dismiss fail, but uh, the judge only allows them to go forward as misdemeanors. And so Alvin Bragg gets 20, say, misdemeanor convictions uh, at a trial in January. Is that a failure or a success?
0: I don't know. It's kind of middling. To the extent people think accountability means not only conviction, and I'm not saying that I think this, but the, to the extent people think that accountability means not only conviction, but also prison time, first of all, it's not clear, and maybe you folks have a different view, it's not clear that a conviction on one or more of these felony counts would result in prison sentence or a substantial prison sentence. It's the lowest level felony, felony, classy felony. And certainly for a misdemeanor conviction or 34 misdemeanor convictions, does anyone on this panel see jail time for Trump in that circumstance?
3: I don't think so. I don't either. I'm, I'm not convinced he goes to jail on the felony charges. It's what a four year sentence, but he's a first time offender, so it could be no jail. Either That's an way. important
0: thing to say. To the you know a lot of people who are listening, particularly those who are not lawyers or criminal lawyers, when they're thinking about this and they're thinking about accountability, they're thinking about prison. One of the most common questions that Joyce and I get is. If Trump goes to prison, does the Secret Service get an adjoining cell? How does that work? And we should demystify that and disabuse people that it is not clear no matter what. And maybe that's another point that goes to the issue of whether or not some people in good faith might think this wasn't a serious enough crime to charge. He may not
2: go to prison at all. I mean, I don't think Trump is going to go to prison. And by the way, the amount, the degree to which you had to shut down New York City yesterday to get him into court... At all is good evidence of why it may be very difficult to sentence him to actual incarceration. And if you were to have a, a sentence of a term of years or whatever, a term of confinement, I, I think you would almost certainly have to do it as some kind of home confinement or uh, some kind of accommodation. And honestly, I don't. Like, we should deal with that question after he has been convicted and not before, both because the set of issues is completely different and also, honestly, because uh, we shouldn't be rubbing our hands together like flies on shit. Uh, trying to you know gleefully I mean there's something ghoulish about imagining and planning for the incarceration of somebody who hasn't been convicted of anything and I don't right. want to do it
0: I wasn't as you know rubbing my hands gleefully
2: No 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 I wasn't talking about you I was I was but I do think some people are being awfully ghoulish about no this. but
0: it's but it's perfectly natural and happens every day where prosecutors at least contemplate and think about what the potential sentence is. Uh, And what the maximums are and what the guidelines are in bringing charges against people. That happens all the time and something that's in people's minds. And I just wanted to point out to folks who are thinking about prison at the end of this. So that's not at all a foregone conclusion for reasons that for reasons that Ben states, it's probably on the unlikely side. Um, And that may also be true for the other charges that may be brought in these other jurisdictions as well. And I just want to level set expectations.
3: I think that's important. um, And I'm glad that you said it that way. I also appreciate what Ben is saying, and I I think it's important in these conversations to underline the fact that something that Trump has tried to do is to strip the rule of law, at least as it applies to him, um, out of our civil society. That makes it even more important in this case to remind people that Trump, like any other defendant, is innocent until proven guilty. He has a right to remain silent um, if he can. Um, And all of the due process protections that would apply to any defendant apply to him in this situation. Something that we cannot do is let the former president, you know, turn people in this country into a rabble of folks yelling, lock him up. We need to let the system take its course with all those protections in place. Um, And I think that that's important. But like Preet and I, I think like many prosecutors, Inevitably, you think early on in a case like this about what the punishment looks like, and that's in fact a part of your calculus. You know, in the federal system, we're explicitly required by the federal principles of prosecution to think about whether what we can do as federal prosecutors is the appropriate outcome in in the case. Is there another authority, for instance, the state or something regulatory that could handle the system in a more effective way that would um, produce accountability? So I'm sure that that's part of Bragg's calculus here, and I'm sure that he's very open-eyed about the fact that, that this may not be a case that ultimately results in incarceration, and that might be a blessing, given what we saw happen yesterday morning on the streets of Manhattan. Yeah,
0: yeah. let's let's run into some more
2: legal issues because there's a lot. Can, room- can I yeah. just say one yeah. word in defense of
3: misdemeanors before we do? <laughs> um, Thank so, goodness somebody wants to. Yeah. So i
2: I would never bring a case against a former president as a prosecutor as a misdemeanor. Um, I there's something. On the trivialish side about that, and I, uh, you know, if if all you can charge is a misdemeanor, you should probably forego the case. That said, misdemeanors have a real role in accountability. Nobody looks at the Steve Bannon prosecution for contempt and says that has nothing to do with uh, with accountability for defying Congress because that's a misdemeanor. Just so folks should be reminded. Yep, and and it won't produce significant jail time um and if this case oh i have no doubt by the way that if trump were willing to plead to a misdemeanor uh, there would be a plea deal available here and so i i do think the misdemeanor is a respectable fallback position that allows the prosecutor to say A, here's a stipulation of fact, this conduct happened. B, uh, that allows you to sort of get out of the sort of jail time discussion. And that C, um, in this particular instance where the misdemeanor is a lesser included uh, charge of 34 felonies, is an outcome that would you know, that wouldn't be wholly implausible or irresponsible as an outcome at a jury trial.
0: We'll be right back with more analysis after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then pass those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless. And you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com/preet. That's mintmobile.com/preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com/preet. 45 dollars upfront payment required, equivalent to 15 dollars a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speeds slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform And it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com slash tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. I think at the end of the day, if we go 18 months or longer with motion practice and security concerns and protests and lots of attention being paid to this. And if at the end of the day, the convictions were only had on misdemeanors, my expectation is that certainly on the Republican side, on the conservative side, the Trump side, there'll be a chorus of criticism consistent with what's happening now. But I think also on the other side of the aisle, there'll be people who are saying, we went through all of this for a misdemeanor. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying what you're saying is incorrect. It's quite plausible what you're saying, Ben, but I I think there will be grand, broad and wide disappointment if this ends up being only misdemeanors choice.
3: So you're being very practical and you're probably right, but I'll tell a quick story about the only misdemeanor case I prosecuted in 25 years as a federal prosecutor. Doug Jones was my U.S. attorney at the time. I'm not sure anybody else would have authorized on this case. Small black church, rural Alabama, The congregation arrives, the kids actually arrive first on a Wednesday afternoon for Bible study to find the most horrible, racist graffiti that you can imagine. I I won't describe it. It was very bad. It was shocking all around the exterior of the church. And by virtue of federal law, even though we were able to identify the people who did it, it was a misdemeanor charge. So the question is, do you charge them or do you let it go? I charged. It was a misdemeanor. We knew that up front. It was obviously not the president of the United States being charged. It was extremely important to the community, not just in that small rural area, but it was important to black people and to, to, you know, just people who were right thinking across Alabama and across the South. Misdemeanor convictions, incredibly important and validating to the community because conduct that was wrong the perpetrators were held accountable for. Yes, and I, are and I get compl- that. I, people are going to complain in this case, no matter what the outcome is. If you shoot at the king, you'd best not miss. I, I get all of that. But at the end of the day, if Trump's conduct was a misdemeanor, it was 34 misdemeanors, he should be held accountable.
0: So I get what you're saying. I think what you're talking about is a completely different context in which just on the face of your saying it, it seems utterly righteous to have brought that misdemeanor um, Ben's example of Steve Bannon and contempt of Congress utterly righteous to bring that when you guys were both talking, it occurred to me that one of the themes of Alvin Bragg's press conference and also in the statement of facts was you know the justification f- for why to bring this and part of the justification was business integrity that you know we are the capital of, of markets and you know a business leading community in Manhattan.
1: We have a distinct and
0: strong I would say profound, independent interest in New York State. This is the business capital of the world. Uh, we regularly uh, do cases involving false business statements. Uh, the, the, the the bedrock, in fact, the basis for uh, business integrity and a well-functioning business marketplace is true and accurate record-keeping. That's the charge that's brought here, falsifying New York State business records. And there was all this talk about how the books and records of companies needs to be, need to be honest and proper and truthful, and that's all correct. But in the context of this and the reason why this case is being brought against Trump, did that not fall a little flat to you?
3: The election context was was what made sense to me. I get, you know, Bragg offers the two side by side at the press conference. Election and New York is a financial center and it's our bread and butter to protect the integrity of business records. I'm very compelled by the election context because Nothing here happens outside of Trump's, you know, this is this is, and we've talked about this. The Access Hollywood tape is out. It's the eve of the election. The Trump campaign is floundering. Many people expect that Hillary wins anyhow, but they are certainly in a state of disarray. And that's really the context for the the Stormy Daniels part of um, this factual basis. That's why I think this example that I have, you know, my one misdemeanor prosecution really resonates with me. It's when we're talking about core values. For me, the core value is that candidates shouldn't try to withhold important information from voters on the eve of an election.
0: By the way, I want to make one note, and then we should talk about a couple more legal issues before we have to go. On the eve of the indictment being unsealed, Donald Trump hired a new lawyer, I believe the lead lawyer. His name is Todd Blanch. I know Todd Blanche very well. So we have a peculiar circumstance here where, at least for me, I supervised and am friends with both Alvin Bragg, the DA, and I supervised and am friends with the new Trump lawyer, Todd Blanche. I, I will say, before all this acrimony starts to come to the fore over the course of the next months, that both of these gentlemen, I think, have integrity, are honorable, are smarter, good lawyers. Both, obviously, we're in the Southern District of New York and have done other things in private practice and elsewhere. Um, I, do, I do want to say that I'm worried for Todd Blanche. I'm worried for any lawyer who signs up for service to Donald Trump. We have a, a line of people who had certain reputations and certain trajectories before they started working for Trump, uh, including Giuliani to some extent, including Pat Cipollone, including a lot of other people. And the old phrase, everything Trump touches dies, is front of mind for me. So I just want to put that on the record. Should we talk about the motions that'll be made? We talked a little bit about motions to dismiss. What about this issue that everybody keeps mentioning, although no one has said they're going to do it, motion to change venue from Manhattan to Staten Island or someplace else? Is that going to fly?
3: Is is that motion valid because there was so much less publicity in Staten Island? Would that be the theory behind that motion?
0: The theory behind the motion is that Staten Island has a lot more Republicans. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the theory. I'm going to
3: say it's an absolute non-starter. They'll, they'll bring it if, if they bring it, and the judge will just sort of giggle in chambers as he stamps it denied.
2: I agree, and I think there's a, a a legal realist as well as a doctrinal explanation for this. Which judge in the world, which trial judge in the world is going to give up the trial of Donald Trump?
0: There's another legal question that we haven't addressed yet, and it's something that experts were predicting would be in the indictment, and it's not, and that's a conspiracy charge. And one of the reasons legal experts were predicting a conspiracy charge, and I've heard many say this, is as people in this this conversation know, if you allege a charge of conspiracy, that enables you at trial to get all sorts of other kinds of evidence in, including statements of co-conspirators, et cetera, and you're able to tell a more robust story the legal theory goes. Joyce, I know you were you were muttering on text a little <laughs> bit about the lack of a conspiracy charge. What do you make of that?
3: Yeah, I'm surprised by that. Um, maybe they thought the only conspiracy charge they had was a misdemeanor, although that doesn't make a lot of sense to me given the rest of the indictment. But as, as a prosecutor, I like a conspiracy. For one thing, it lets me tell a larger story in the indictment, which would have been helpful here, but as a practical matter at trial because of admissibility of evidence issues. It lets you bring in a lot of evidence. You know, I was looking at the statement of facts and the charges last night and thinking, well, perhaps the way they've pled this with this very complete listing of charges, they felt like they can get all the evidence in that they need on the substantive counts. Still, I don't know why, you know, the the statement of facts actually starts out um, by alleging, in essence, a conspiracy charge, I sort of made notes on the side. here's here's the scheme. You know, here's here's the background. Here are the overt acts. It all seems to be there. So I'm uh, mystified about why there's no conspiracy charge.
2: I was a little puzzled by that as well. I'm not sure I have ever seen an indictment before, or, in this case, a statement of facts that describes an illegal scheme. But does not charge a conspiracy. <laughs>
0: it's a definition of scheme.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I did find that very puzzling, and you know, Bragg talked about it as you know uh, describes this story whereby there's an illegal scheme to push this past the election, and um, but then it is not charged as a conspiracy, and so I, I kind of wondered about that.
3: You know, there's, there's one thing that occurs to me, Preet, and you might be able to shed some light on this. You've got a situation where the two obvious co-conspirators, Michael Cohen and then David Pecker, who headed AMI at, at this point in time, they are both, in essence, parts of plea deals. Cohen pleads and goes to prison. Um, Pecker, there's a, there's a non-pros agreement in which they admit guilt, in essence, for this. I don't know if that made the conspiracy less attractive. I think to me it would actually make it more really important to charge it to get that out in front of the jury.
0: What's interesting also is the statement of facts mentions multiple times, apparently for the purpose of trying to present evidence of guilt on the part of Donald Trump, that other people admitted culpability, that Michael Cohen in particular pled guilty. And in recent years, as people may know if you're practicing, the DA's office is not going to be able to admit into evidence the fact of Michael Cohen's guilty plea for the purpose of proving that a crime was committed, correct? It'll come out as impeachment of Michael Cohen because he's going to have to go through a direct examination and all his bad acts are going to have to come out. and can be He can be cross-examined on those things. But in some ways, it's interesting that that they're making a point, and tell me if I'm being unfair, they're making a point in the statement of facts in a way that seems like something they wouldn't be able to do at trial.
3: Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. I think that is a a little bit odd. And the other thing that's odd along the same vein in the statement of facts is when they're talking about AMI, they're talking about also making false entries into AMI's books, which would, of course, support some of these charges. And I wonder if we'll see an effort to use that sort of evidence which would be so much more robust if this was a conspiracy than you might on on what's called a Pinkerton theory, make folks liable for every amount of conduct that's reasonably foreseeable by co-conspirators. So you could hold Trump accountable for AMI's conduct on on that theory, perhaps. But it's it's a little bit different here when you don't have the conspiracy charge and you're still putting all that information out.
0: We'll be right back with more conversation after this.
4: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. So, get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at constantcontact.com. Just go to constantcontact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
1: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity van 29com
0: dot com Is anyone surprised? Here's the other thing that's going to happen. Trump did his rally. He seemed kind of muted. Some stations carried it, some stations didn't. But in the lead-up to the unsealing of the indictment, Donald Trump did a number of things. He's called the D.A. Uh, Soros-backed animal. There's that picture he posted of him with a baseball bat next to a photograph of Alvin Bragg's head. He's criticized the judge, all sorts of things he's saying, and it's going to get worse and worse. So in the lead up to the arraignment, people were wondering, is there going to be a gag order? Is there going to be a suggestion of a gag order? The DA's office obviously made these points in court. On the other hand, Donald Trump is running for president. And it must be the case that he be permitted in our democracy to campaign and campaign in part on the fact that he's being, in his mind, railroaded. That's the First Amendment right that he has. How do you think that will be balanced? How do you think
2: that should be balanced? It seems to me a pretty tricky thing. It's a very tricky thing, and it occupied a fair bit of time at the hearing yesterday. Uh, the DA's office uh, started by raising these concerns with the judge uh your uh, your former colleague mr blanch uh uh responded very forcefully to them in a fashion that amounted to hey you know trump is very upset he's allowed to uh he, but he's not threatening anybody. Uh and the judge kind of took it all under advisement and said basically I'm not going to impose a gag order. This guy is running for president. He has First Amendment rights, of course, but uh, watch it. If, you know, if this continues, I might have to revisit that. The other thing they did that I uh, I think is the chief mechanism by which they're going to try to control this is they disclosed that they were uh, negotiating a protective order for discovery that will put very strict limits on Trump's ability to use any discovery uh, outside of the context of the Uh, the uh, defense itself, that is, that there'll be something of a firewall protected by the possibility of contempt between, you know, the use of information for the litigation and the use of information for publicly smearing prosecutors or for campaigning or for attacking the courts or whatever. So I think it's very much on the court's mind, um, and I think the implication that Judge Mershon gave marchan uh is that uh he is willing to give Trump a pretty long leash with respect to uh with respect to things like, you know, political rhetoric, but he's gonna have to stop well short of endangering people uh associated with the criminal justice system and i thought it was pretty interesting that trump the the most he said yesterday at his uh press conference or had at his speech yesterday evening at mar-a-lago was that he uh the judge hates me i have a trump hating judge with a trump hating wife and family but he didn't call brag an animal he didn't you know use violent rhetoric he just used whiny rhetoric
3: Trump really looks like someone who's almost inviting the gag order and and you know not a legal consideration for the judge but you can imagine how he would use that to his benefit on the campaign trail
0: we only have a couple of minutes left and I'm left with a continuing lingering question that we've talked about and people have asked about and was asked about at the press conference. With alvin bragg and we're not going to get an answer i can tell you that right now and the question is why didn't sdny bring the case there's a period of time during which the reporting is that bill barr was putting pressure on them not to bring such a case but it does seem that sdny was interested in it because they fought to have language about individual one donald trump uh, in the court papers when michael cohen pled guilty So it wasn't like they were gonna take the guilty plea for Michael Cohen and were utterly uninterested in any accountability for Donald Trump. And then of course, Bill Barr left. There was still time on the statute of limitations. They didn't bring it. We have speculated about why that might be because maybe Michael Cohen is not a good enough witness. Maybe they thought in their estimation, it wasn't a serious enough thing to do, wasn't worth the resources and the agita, maybe a combination of those things. But we're not gonna get an answer to that, even though as I sit here and as someone who also would not have answered the question, If I were the U.S. attorney, it's something that I I would really like to understand and know. And I think it would cause people to be able to view the decision by Alvin Bragg as more or less justified. Am I putting too much emphasis on that?
3: No, I I don't think that you are at all. And I wonder if some of that decision, and this is rank speculation, um, involves, you know, Michael Cohen has an inability to say that he pled guilty because he was guilty. He said it in a courtroom under oath, but he's all over television saying, I pled guilty because they were holding a gun to my head. They were going <laughs> right. to force my wife to yeah. take a guilty plea if I didn't, or, or my, force my wife to be indicted if I didn't take a guilty plea. So that's been his explanation. You know, if you're in the SDNY that's a tough witness to put on the stand, even with good corroboration. If you don't have corroboration, you probably do have to decide you're not going to go ahead. And Alvin Bragg said something interesting at the press conference yesterday that he wasn't pushed on. It was just sort of a quick, quiet line. But he was asked, "What you know, why, why are you indicting now when you didn't do it earlier? And he said, we have evidence available to us that was not available during my predecessor's tenure or, or words to that effect. That might be interesting to know. Does he have something fresh and new that corroborates Cohen? If so, what is it? Maybe it would have been evidence that would have changed SDNY's calculus, too, but they're out of time.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. I think there is is a lingering question about why SDNY didn't bring the case, and I do think you would feel differently about it if the answer to that question is, you know— SDNY thought the conduct was marginal and um and the witness, the chief witness, was uh relatively unreliable, then if the answer to it was SDNY didn't bring it because there was a a sense at Maine Justice that, you know, after January 6th, if we're going to bring a case against Against Donald Trump, it should really be about the main event. And so they left important federal interests unaddressed. Then you might look at Alvin Bragg and say, okay, well, the SDNY gets to do that, but that's, we have a system of divided sovereignty and New York gets to make its own judgment. And so I think the reason for SDNY's uh, declination on this case really does matter. Uh, to an equitable assessment of it. But that said, you're we're never going to know the answer to it. So it's a it's one of the many variables that you'd like to you know know what the coefficient is, but you're not going to.
0: You know what I'm going to do now? I'm going to impose a gag order on both of you because <laughs> our time is up. Our First Amendment <laughs> rights
2: are being squelched. I think
0: Ben Wittes should
2: run for president.
3: I'd vote for him.
2: Uh, you know, the, the constituency for dog shirts and, uh, <laughs> uh, I've, unlike Donald Trump, I am banned from Twitter. So, you know, I, I think my candidacy's uh, prospects may be, uh, pretty limited,
0: but you'll live longer due to that ban, uh, Ben Joyce. Thanks for joining again on a historic momentous occasion and we'll see how it unfolds. Stay tuned.
2: Thanks for having me.
3: Bye y'all.
0: Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guests, Joyce Vance and Ben Wittes. For more analysis of the Trump indictment, consider joining the Cafe Insider community. Each week, Joyce and I break down the latest legal headlines on the Cafe Insider podcast. You can get your first month for just one dollar. Head to cafe.com/slash-insider. That's cafe.com/slash-insider. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Curlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Barara. Stay Tuned.